Turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 6. These scriptures are familiar to most Christians. And what actually brought this topic to mind is an old song. When the battle's over, we shall wear a crown. We shall wear a crown. We shall wear a crown. When the battle's over, we shall wear a crown in the new Jerusalem. That's the title of my message, When the Battle's Over, from Ephesians chapter 6, beginning at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Let's stop at verse 18. And again, I want to talk to you about when the battle is over. Now, just quickly, it comes to my mind last night when I was finished studying and I have to relax my mind as well as my body. And I just put on some songs that were from long ago in my walk with the Lord. They really brought back some really great memories. Songs from camp meetings and songs from you know, some of the preachers that I listened to years ago that are no longer with us, went home to be with the Lord. And it really brought back some pleasant memories. It occurred to me, we really need a lot of uplifting in this hour. We need to be encouraged. Well, I would say motivated. And we need to encourage ourselves in the Lord, which is what David did when his own people turned against him. If you want to go in the ministry and you're really called, I'll certainly help you along the way. But make sure you're called. You're going to find that the people that turn against you are the very people that you ate with. Well, that's not true necessarily of you, but it's been my experience. And we need to be encouraged. We're getting surprise attacks in different areas. So you are all informed individuals. You read the news, watch the news, maybe too much. That's up to you what you do with it. I actually read the news all day long, but I don't read long articles. I don't want to know every detail. I understand what's going on, and then I just move on to the next thing. And some of you, if not most of you, and maybe all of you have seen the erection of an eight-foot statue on one of New York City's courthouses next to Moses and some other well-known lawgivers throughout history of a Medusa. And the other ones are done in marble or whatever they're done in, whatever the artist made the other ones out of. This one's in gold. It stands out. Let me read to you one headline, but most of the headlines, it's kind of odd when they're all saying the same thing. One headline stated, Satanic Golden Medusa, abortion statue outside New York City Courthouse. And then they added, ruthlessly mocked as a monstrosity, which not everybody mocked it. The sculpture is meant to represent the fight for abortion rights. Now, 
I don't think that my wife had actually seen this, so I showed it to her. And I said, is it anything strange that people, it's not just women, who say that we have a right to take a living child, which seems with some scientific minds to be a debatable point, but with God and ourselves, it's not. A living being inside a mother's womb, that a mother has the right to take it out. It's murder. Infanticide. Is it really much of a stretch that they would pick a satanic symbol with the ram's horns? And if you haven't seen it, just you want to take a look at it. Sort of like the sculpture they put in Boston to Martin Luther King, which that begs a description all the way through, if you've seen that. And what I've said to people, and I'm saying this to you and those that are watching or listening by way of radio, you are now witnessing a country that has made the same decisions, not everyone obviously, the same decisions as ancient Israel. We will have God our way. We will go to the temple and do certain things commanded in the law. Then we're going to do certain other things like adultery and stealing and false witness and all that. And God's going to bless us. And then Isaiah comes along and Jeremiah comes along. And then even when they were in captivity, Daniel and Ezekiel came along, especially Ezekiel. And God speaking to his people over and over and over again. This is not the way. Don't walk in this way and so on. What you're witnessing in the United States of America is one country without God. I preached on that a few weeks ago. We're basically telling God, we will worship you our way. We will take verses out of the Bible that please us. And the ones that don't please us, we won't listen to it. We won't go hear a preacher who's going to talk about it. And God, because he gives man choices to make, I'll use our colloquial expression. He says, okay, I'll take my hand off your country. I'll take my hand off your military. I'll take my hand off of those things that you hold so dear. That's what you're witnessing. And you say, yeah, the problem's in our government. And I say, no, I've been preaching this for over 30 years. The problem's not in our government. We have a constitutional republic. Even if you want to say democracy, which is not. Either way, it's the people that are choosing their leaders. No, what we have is a problem with God. And the problem, I would argue with anybody, is not in the government not in New York City, not at the federal level, not in Albany. The problem that we have is in the church. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And I shared with you just a few minutes ago, wicked ways, adultery. Well, that's wicked. And fornication and sexual perversions and all these things that we're reading about more and more. And the false witnesses, corruption on every level. And the Bible says it's the little foxes. Who doesn't talk to who in church? Are you kidding me? What Bible are you reading? Or you can just with impunity just disregard the verse and make up your own commentary? This is what Israel did and it was a serious mistake. Because they thought that God would protect them, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no matter what they did. And when again Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the minor prophets, they came along and they said, not so. God's going to judge this nation and you're going to go captivity to a foreign land and on and on. You know about the Babylonian captivity. I want to share with you today about when the battle's over, so it ends on a really good note. But I want to read to you here something, a book I read some time ago, a couple months ago. And the title of it is On Combat. And the subtitle of this book is The Psychology and Physiology of Deadly Conflict in War and in Peace by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. It's a book on war. And I want you to see, this is very interesting because it has an application for you and me. Lieutenant Colonel Grossman writes in his book on combat, 
We have already addressed Brigadier General Marshall's findings in this area in World War II based on his innovative techniques of post-combat interviews. After the combat, after the firefight, after the, oh, well, the war, Marshall concluded, listen to this, Marshall concluded in his landmark book, Men Against Fire, that only 15 to 20 percent of the individual riflemen in World War II fired their weapons at an exposed enemy soldier. Well, that paints a different picture than what we see on television. Take 100 men in combat, and only 15 are actually firing at exposed enemies right there. Only 15, maybe 20. That means 80 to 85 percent never fired their rifle, and they're in combat. And I'll just say this as a commentary. Didn't anybody ever figure out the enemy may shoot back? That you have two options on the battlefield? One of us dies, I choose you. Only 15 to 20 percent of the individual riflemen in World War II fired their weapons at an exposed enemy soldier. As I noted earlier, every available parallel scholarly study of combat firing validates Marshall's basic findings, Artan Dupique's surveys of French officers in the 1860s and his observations on ancient battles, Keegan and Holmes, numerous accounts. By the way, these are all scholars including the author of this book. And he's quoting all scholars on historical combat or combat in history. They're scholars on war. Patty Griffith's data on the extraordinary low killing rate among Napoleonic and American Civil War regiments. I remember reading somewhere that only about half of the guns ever went off in the American Civil War. That means 50 people out of 100 didn't shoot at all. These are scholars proving these points. Not in just one war, in wars since the beginning of time. Stauffer's extensive World War II and post-war research, Richard Holmes' assessment of Argentine firing rates in the Falklands War, the British Army's laser reenactments of historical battles, the FBI's studies of non-firing rates among law enforcement officers in the 50s and 60s, and countless other individual and anecdotal observations all confirm Marshall's fundamental conclusion that man is not by nature a close-range interpersonal killer. We don't like to kill people that we can see them. It was easier now. People just push a button. You don't have to see who's dead. On combat, what I wanted you to hear, number one, that by nature, we're not killers. Unless you're a sociopath, that's different. But we're not killers. We don't like to kill people. People don't like to kill people. That's what he's trying to prove. And he goes on to say, and this is amazing to me, indeed, all evidence indicates that ancient battles, that's the ones we read about and talk about, were not much more than great shoving matches until one side or the other fled. So I think of the movie Braveheart. There's the leader, Williams, on his horse, and the Scots are, and they got axes, and they got all this stuff, and they're painted, which the Scots and the Irish did do. And he's saying all historical evidence, all historical references, basically got down to a big shoving match on the field. People weren't actually killing each other until they started to flee. But listen to this one here. This can be observed in Alexander the Great, who, according to Ardent Dupique's studies of ancient records, lost only 700 men. This is Alexander the Great. Lost only 700 men to the sword in all his battles put together. Now read up on Alexander the Great. And this research is saying in all of those battles, only 700 men actually died by the sword. And it was because Alexander the Great always won. And listen to this. Listen, and nearly all the killing happened to the losers after the battle was in the pursuit phase. That means people started to run. That's when they got killed. By the way, just as an aside, you can read up on the American Civil War. And most wars, people don't die most from gunshots or bayonet wounds or anything. They die from disease. 
There was more diseases in the camps in the American Civil War that men were dying from than they were losing in battle, as we're reading. The history of warfare is not necessarily as either A, glorious, or B, as accurate as we thought. Now, I want to submit to you the obvious, I think it should be obvious, but sometimes I don't know if it's that obvious. I really don't. It's obvious to me. My friends, we are at war. We're at war. I can stand here in the public talking about whether you have eternal life or not. I have people sleeping. How come you don't sleep during a football game? I mean, some people do. Or what you're really interested in. You know why? Because we're at war. And because Satan is looking to find out what will work on you. What lure will you bite down on so that you are taken captive by him at his will? And that's in this book. I mean, people are taken captive by him at his will. That's in the book. It's in the Bible. What strategy is going to work on you? And your worst enemy right now would say, well, nothing will work on me. I told you that one of the reasons that I haven't fallen away from the Lord to this point is because I know that I could at any minute. That's the truth. That's the thing, that's the thing that's kept me is that I know I could defect. I'll tell you one thing I couldn't do. I couldn't be out breaking God's laws and stand before you here as this super duper preacher in this teeny weeny town. I couldn't do that. I really couldn't. But I could defect. Because Peter said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. They could all do that, but I'll even die. And Jesus said, really? You'll die for me? He says, before the night's over three times, you'll say you don't even know me. You see, Peter didn't understand the power of his own flesh. And we must understand the power of the flesh and how it can deceive us at any moment. But worse than that, or equally as bad, is Satan putting lures out there all the time. What is it you will bite on? You say you never commit adultery. Maybe you never will. But you never conquered your anger. And if you would look in Galatians 5, you're going to find that that's in the book that says that you do these things, and there's 19 of them, you'll not see the kingdom of heaven. It's in the book. It's in the book. So we are at war, but who's going to win? Ah, you know, we say Jesus won, Jesus won, Jesus won. Well, how about we start to prove it? How about we start to prove it not here in the sanctuary? That's easy. How about we start to prove it out there? Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to them that believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Jew. How about we start to prove it? How about we start to prove that Christ has actually won and given us the victory? Listen to this, too. This is also from the same book. And the subtitle here is Posturing as a Psychological Weapon. General Xenophon in the 4th century B.C. wrote these words. He said, I am sure that not numbers or strength bring victory in war. Not numbers and not strength. But whichever army goes into battle stronger in soul, their enemies cannot withstand them. That means we're in this. That means I will keep getting up as long as I have breath in my lungs. I will never surrender to you. I will never give in. I will never give up. I think it's time we start proving, not posing. So the first thing we saw in our text from verse 10 is, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, where do we get that from? Well, start with reading the word of God and taking it seriously. When you read the Bible, say to yourself, how does this apply to me? And I caution you for years and years that I've been here with you as your pastor in this town. Stop applying verses to everybody else. It's not working. They're not going to change because you have applied the verse in your Bible reading to them. Apply it to yourself. We have enough professing Christians that start applying every verse they read to themselves. And combined, we have the augmentation of God's power and spirit. God shows up in a manner of speaking. So it says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of 
his mic. Then we go to prayer. And we could talk about singing. And remember, singing is not the thing we call worship. It's a part of what we have in the Bible as worship. Worship is how you live. It's who you are in the dark. It's what you're thinking right now. And what you think about all day long. Marcus Aurelius, the emperor and also the Roman general, said a man is what he thinks about all day long. What do you think about all day long? We're commanded in the scriptures, Deuteronomy 6, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Talk about the law of the Lord when we're in our house, when we walk in the way, when we lie down, when we rise up. Joshua was commanded, be strong. The book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. And so on. Why? He says in Joshua 1.8, he says that thou mightest observe to do, to do. In the New Testament, when the mother of Jesus said to him, they've run out of wine, and what do you want with me? This is not my hour. She just turned away, and she says, whatever he says to do, do it. She didn't say, whatever you've read, read it and think about it. She said, whatever he says to do, do it. This is where the power of God is, and it's in none else. It's in none else. You say, I read the Bible every morning, and you should. You should. It's your, your duty as well as your privilege but it doesn't mean much if you just close it and do what you want. In fact, it doesn't mean anything at all. You know, and I'm speaking for myself. I've told you I'm finding it easier to live for the Lord in this evil, wicked world. I really am. And <laughs> the reason that I don't want to retire from ministry is because I want to fight. This is how I was raised. And a little bit later, I'm going to give you a fantastic quote. It may pinch a little bit about cowards. I'm at a point now where every day I get up, it just seems to get more sick of this world. I'm going to the gym. I'm smelling reefer off of young people. Most of them are younger people. And I'm six feet away. I've never seen this in my whole life. I've been working out for 57 years, 58 years. They're getting high so they can focus. I grew up in the 60s. You never got high on reefer to see how you can focus. I mean, if there's anything that's a deception, that one is, is paramount. Yeah, it helps me focus. I go out into the parking lot. Kids are smoking a blunt. As big as a cigar. That's the truth. I saw it with my own eyes. And it's just turning my stomach. I could say I don't want to be in this world anymore, but I don't have suicidal ideation. I want to bring people to Christ. And I'll tell you something. In my view, in all the years that I've been saved, I've never seen a better opportunity to preach Christ. I'm talking with a guy yesterday I've known for some time. He's younger than me by about 18 years, but that's still not a young guy. And we're just talking. Told him a little bit about where I came from. Told him about where he knows I'm a pastor, where I'm at now. The opportunities are there for me every single day. Am I the only one? No. 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 The opportunities are in front of everybody. And so we live in a wicked world that we can go around and, you know, I could have made this whole thing. We live in a wicked world and for an hour just talk about it's a wicked world. Well, we already know that. There's a battle going on. I, for one, want to be in it. And I'm trying to motivate you to be in it, to be the real deal. And we oppose her. There are well, more than a dime of dust. And who has respect for someone who's posing as anything, but they're not the real deal? And only God anoints the real deal. Anyone can talk, as they say, it's cheap. So he says, number one, be strong in the Lord. Not be strong in yourself and my genetics and my family and all that. I talk about my family. I talk about my genetics. I talk about how I was brought up. But I'm instructed and you're instructed to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's number one. Then, verse 11, we're told to put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. My best friend from high school, still my best friend, closest friend, was in the Yankee farm systems, catcher. 
One day we were playing just a little pickup game of baseball in the park, and I said, well, I'll catch. I had no helmet, and I had no glove. I was just catching the ball. Everybody came over. I said, what, are you crazy? Well, at that time, the answer could have been yes. <laughs> they all said, you can't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. But you see, I was dumb enough not to know how fast these balls were coming in from A1, who's a professional ball player, and everybody else. Even the bat hit me. I had no helmet, nothing. Just catch it with my hand while they're whizzing the ball in. What I want to say and to point out to you is this. You can't just put on some of the armor. No. You've got to put on every part of the armor, all of it, every bit of it, because this is a war, and this war is going to have, it has a casualty list that is very real. And listen to me. I've told you so many times I stand in this pulpit, and I know that I'm helpless. I can say words. I can quote scriptures. I can give you anecdotes, and I can give you illustrations. But unless the Holy Spirit touches your heart, you still won't understand. Your eyes won't be open to see the darkness of this world. You could smell it the way I do. Now I'm smelling it in my gym. I grew up in one of the largest drug neighborhoods in Yonkers, New York. And it was one of the largest drug neighborhoods at that time in the country. Kids come to me and say, well, you don't know much about drugs. You don't know nothing about life. And you have no idea where I came from. I don't talk about everything that I've done. I don't talk about every place I've been. I don't talk about everybody I was associated with back in the day. I know a lot more than you think I know. A lot more than you think I know. And I know this much. Choosing Christ was a much better choice than anything else that's out there. And that's the truth. So I'm all in. I'm all in. And here, when we read in verse 11, it says, put on the whole armor. You've got to protect your head. You've got to protect your chest and the vital organs, the breastplate of righteousness, you got a shield for the fiery darts. All right, these are arrows dipped in some type of pitch. That these arrows are on fire. You that bow hunt or you shoot a bow, you know how sharp those arrows are, how fast they come, how much damage they can do. Now put a little fire on them and make your day. And the Bible says we have a shield that will catch the fiery darts. And then we have a helmet of salvation. We got to protect the mind. We got to protect the head. This is a big thing in boxing. But we also have an offensive weapon. We don't have to simply sit there catching arrows all day long. We've got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. It's not the word of men. It's the word of God. The name Jehovah is used over 6,685 times in the Bible. Jehovah, Lord, God. God said, the Lord spake, and so on, and so on, and so on. Thousands of times. This book says, this is not man's book. I told man what to write, and he wrote it down. We better wise up. We want to spare the country. That's one thing. But Jesus has spared yourself. Because there's all types of deceptions out there. Luring. And they don't come, as we've already read, from flesh and blood. The battle we're fighting with this eight-foot statue and so on, and there's other statues being erected around the country, while they're pulling down our history. I want you to look at the word if your Bible still open, wiles. The wicked, it says in Proverbs, trip over things. I'm paraphrasing. They don't even know what they're tripping over. My dog has a habit of just dropping his bone, you know, his play stuff, just wherever. The lights are off. I don't see it. I step on it. And turn a little bit. Good thing I still have my balance. The wicked don't know what they're tripping over. But how much worse that you that have a lamp and a light to your feet don't know what you keep tripping over. Because you say you're not an adulterer. Good. That's great. That's good. It's really good. And you don't steal. That's good. And you don't bear false witness. But these little foxes, they got to go. 
because the enemy uses that as a strategy against you. The Greek word for wiles is methodia, a method. Satan, I believe here, it says has a method against me. And for me, it's always been busyness. Just keep me active, keep the information coming. I can't even remember I did a child dedication only a couple months ago. Why? Because I don't have a good memory, a great memory. I just got so much coming at me all day long. So I've made a decision. Push it all out and focus. How come you don't answer me? Send me a text. Because I'm going forward. See that? Because that tactic always worked on me. Just busy work like you used to get in college when your teacher didn't know what to say. Here, read 400 pages. Satan has a strategy for you, and you better believe it. He has a strategy for you. What's going to get you to walk away from Christ? And one of those strategies is to make you think you're a Christian, but you're not. Read Matthew 7, 24, 25, 26, and 27. What is the method? If we were to take a survey, you know, who is the greatest conqueror of all time, that would be, especially for scholars, a matter of opinion, Genghis Khan and Scipio Africanus and all these people. But who always tops the list by scholars is Napoleon as the greatest strategist of all time. Of course, didn't always work out that well at the end, did it? Even Napoleon, they say, had his Waterloo. But Satan's strategies only work when we're not paying attention to the directions given to us by God. It's just that simple. And the greatest general, it's a matter of opinion, some say Napoleon, and next to Napoleon, some even say Robert E. Lee. Napoleon fought, I think, in 48 battles during his campaigns. Lee was in 27. It doesn't matter to us who was the most imposing strategist of all time. What matters to us is that we understand there is a strategy in this warfare against you, that there's a real hell as well as a real heaven. And real people are going to one or the other, and the choice is left with you. We choose. Understanding God's grace and election and all this stuff, we still have to make a choice. Whom will you serve? Didn't Joshua say that? You want to serve the gods on this side of the river? Then you go ahead. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The Lord, I've told people this, even people come in and do some contracting. One guy said to me once, when he was putting down a floor, he says, everything's working out so great, so, so smooth. That never happens. They said, there's an unseen guest in this house that's here all the time. His name is Jesus. I don't know. He knew what to think of that, but that's the truth. What is the key to win a war? Someone writes this. To win your war, you must utilize strategy, tactics, and propaganda. Be prepared to be surprised and plan to surprise your enemy. Keep your energy and enthusiasm high. Don't get dejected due to temporary setbacks and failures. That's life for everybody, not just Christians. But I said to you early, don't be a poser. We have to be in this to win it for ourselves so that we can sing, as I'll share these words with you when I'm finished here in a few minutes, when the battle's over, we shall wear a crown, but not if you're not firing your gun. Now, you listen to me. You might, well, people did, obviously got away with it in World War II, the American Civil War, and all the wars of history. But in this war, every single one of you are in it. And the enemy is not going to have any mercy on you or your children or your family or anything else. No mercy. Not like even man, certainly with God. He'll have no mercy on what he will do to you if you don't pay attention to the commands of God and the principles of Scripture. There will be no mercy. I'm not ashamed to say the fear of the Lord has always been my stay. Not much afraid of man. Not much afraid of man at all. But you talk about God being on my case. That brings a whole different set of circumstances to my mind. I hope it does to yours. Thankfully, by the way, not only does Satan have a strategy, so does God. 
And the beauty of God's strategy is you can read it. You can read it. I want to impress upon you that we are in a war and the casualty list is real enough. Last night, how many millions of people went into eternity without Christ? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. For me, that's enough. That's all I need to know. He said there's a hell and he died on the cross to prevent us from going there. That's enough for me. I don't need the words of other people, philosophers, and well, and all. I don't need it. Jesus said it. And that's good enough for me. Jesus said it. So, I mean, who are we fighting? All right, so in America here, we know who we're fighting. We're fighting those leftist liberal commies. Well, I don't have any doubt about those people over there. But you know what? I'm having, I've told you, I'm having real concerns with people on the right. Sometimes I don't even feel like I fit in with these people who say, hey, I'm this and I'm that. And all you hear is, vul- this is coming from women too. F-bombs and F-you. I said, okay, well, I don't know if I fit in here anymore. And I definitely don't fit in over here. So I guess I'll go to Jesus. I guess I'll preach the gospel. I told you about the guy I met, conservative guy, American patriot, you know, all this horse manure. No, I'm taking down my flag. So you take American flag. You're taking down your flag. Yeah, you know, I'm sick of this country. This is a patriot. He wants to take his flag down because he's disgusted. I said, why are you taking your flag down? What's wrong with you? He said, I'm going to fight back. How are you going to do that? I said, I've got a pulpit. And I'm going to use it for the glory of God, not for the United States of America. I'm going to use it for the glory of God. And you have weapons too. He said, I do, yeah. You got the Bible, you got prayer, and faith that quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And we've got to use the whole armor because once again, we are in a real war. And the casualty list is real enough. And we're seeing it manifest in the material world in our country and around the world. You want an eight-foot statue of a Medusa, which is a satanic figure, on top of a courthouse? What kind of justice do you think you're going to get when a judge himself may be a Satanist? I'm not saying they are. I'm just saying, what kind of justice? What kind of world are we living in when they put a statue up to erect this so-called right to take a baby out of the womb and kill it? This is where we're at. This wasn't always true in our country. And can we sit in a seat of mediocrity and say, well, you know, hey, nice sermon, Pastor. You know what? Look, if we're not going to do this thing, I mean, I hope that you love me. I really do. But I don't need all that. I'm not here for the pat on the back. I'm here to preach Jesus. I'm here to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm here to motivate you, but not how to have flat abs and how to lose weight on a keto diet. Really? You know that bothered me for months now. They're erecting eight-foot statues of satanic figures, and she's going around telling us how to lose weight on the keto diet. Yeah. How stupid is that? A preacher's going to preach Jesus. A preacher's going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and tell people you must be born again. You must be saved from the wrath to come, and you can be sure that wrath of God is coming. It's on the horizon. We can see it. But if you're saved from it by obedience to Christ, then you sing the song we sang earlier. Saved, saved, saved. So he says, put on the whole armor because we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That was my point. But against principalities, against powers. This is verse 12. Your Bible's still open. Against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I'd advise you to get away from all these books. I've had a few. I got rid of them. Who's a 33rd degree Mason? You'd be surprised. And they had all these names up there. So I'm chucking this thing. How do I know what goes on in a secret meeting? How does anybody know what goes on in a secret meeting? Because it was secret. But yeah, they're going to write a big book. Toss it. 
It doesn't matter what the flesh and blood is or who the flesh and blood is. Behind it are satanic powers. They're working on our families. They're working on our marriages. They're working on our churches. Working on preachers. We must put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the methodia and the methods of Satan. Look at it again. Verse 13, wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. You want to watch a great boxing match? Well, great in the sense of, well, maybe it's not great if you don't like violence. Jack Dempsey beating Jess Willard. Jess Willard was a giant. Jack Dempsey weighed maybe 170, 80 pounds. Thin, coal miner, tough, rugged Irish man. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody take such a beating in the ring as Jess Willard. And I watched that fight. I couldn't believe the ref didn't call it. Just beating this man and beating this man and beating this man. Breaking bones in his jaw. Breaking bones in his skull. But the thing that really... And Dempsey was the champion and he's been one of my favorite fighters. But what really got to me is the fact that this man wouldn't quit. He kept getting up out of the corner. Jess Willard. You have the guts. Watch it. Because it proves one thing. There are certain people in this world that just won't quit. And Satan's one of them. And God is one of them. Now, will we be one of them? Say, there's no way. There's no way in the world that I'm going to give in or give up. Listen, C.S. Lewis stated something that I, I know is true. And this is what he said. Satan's strategy is best served by either personal disbelief in his existence, which is not the case here. Or an exaggerated reverence to his power, which can be the case here, I don't know. If you want to give Satan the victory, ascribe unto him the attributes that belong only to God. Satan is not everywhere present. Satan is not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. So there's two extremes that Lewis pointed out, and I preached on it myself. He said that either extreme serves his purpose of deceiving and dominating the human race. And both extremes are quite prevalent in contemporary culture. Secular humanism has postulated a material universe devoid of spirit. That's why you see, if, well, I don't, I don't watch this junk that's on television, but if I happen to peek in for some reason, and the universe is speaking to me. Well, the universe is not speaking to me. It produces sounds and radio waves, and we know that. The one that's speaking to me is God come in the flesh. Even the church today is guilty of this polarity. Many, quote, rational Christians downplay demonic activity in their spiritual walk, while others find a demon behind every bush. They're both extremes. One thing is certain, today Christians find, listen to me now, one thing is certain, today Christians find spiritual growth an uphill battle. How many of you can say, whoa, that's true? Well, you know what? Here's the thing. It's always been true. We know it's not just our own weaknesses or the culture's anti-Christian basis, but also a powerful personal enemy who seeks to defeat us every step of the way. You see, like Jess Willard, Satan just keeps getting back up out of the corner until God does away with him totally, which is coming. And when the battle's over, but until then, <laughs> mark this good. Satan is not quitting the fight. If you quit the fight, you lose by default. You're already out. So what's your choice? For me, I want to be like the Apostle Paul. For that matter, just will have lost the fight, but he never quit. And I admire him for that. Can you say, will you be able to say at the end of your life, I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And that's what I'm going to end with today. How do you want to enter heaven? Now, I want to introduce you to a man who lived in the 17th century. His name was William Gurnall, a Puritan. I want to tell you, if you really want to up your reading, this is just a personal opinion. That's all it is. I don't read hardly anything by modern Christian writers. I know there's some good ones. I just don't. You get into William Gurnall's book. It's this thick, and it's called The Christian in Complete Armor. It was written in the 17th century, 1600s. He was in Lavingham, England, and the pastor there for oh, 45 years or something like that. And he was Puritan. And in his book, he writes these words. And I'm telling you, just listen carefully. Who among us has not learned from his own experience that it requires another spirit than the world can give to follow Christ fully? Let this exhort you then, Christian, to petition God for the holy determination and bravery you must have to follow Christ. Bravery. Now, this is, this is a statement. I had to read this a couple of times. I think I'm going to memorize it. Let me go back and read it again. To petition God for the holy determination and bravery, you must have to follow Christ. Without it, you cannot be what you profess. Pray for the Holy Spirit. Pray to be filled with the Spirit of Christ. Not a drama. The real thing. Pray to be filled with that. Because Gurnall here says what I believe. Without that, you can't be what you profess you are. That's what he says. But listen to this. This is the thing that gets me. See, these Puritans, they were heavyweights. Oh, yeah, they were heavyweights. Here, an hourglass. Young man says, I'm called to be a preacher. They put the hourglass, turn it upside down. If he couldn't preach for one hour, he wasn't called to the ministry. When they first graduated out of Harvard, when it was actually a Christian school, if you couldn't stay in one place for your whole entire ministry, didn't consider you fit to be in the ministry. Now, like Peter, what's his name? Peter Cottontail, pastor says, oh, well, Lord, let me hear, 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 hear. Well, then be an evangelist. But the pastor's got to take care of people. In any case, this is heavy. This is William Gurnall, not Pastor Barnett. The fearful are those who march for hell. That's <laughs> William Gurnall. He's a pastor. He wasn't a visiting evangelist that came and went and says, see, he had to stay there for 40-something years with the people that he knew. The fearful are those who march for hell. And if you look in Revelation chapter 21, you'll see at the top of the list, I pointed this out to you before, at the top of the list of those that don't make the kingdom are the fearful and unbelieving. So we can't lean back and say, well, you know, we've always been nervous. I have a sensitive nervous system and it gives me troubles, but I'm not going to let that hold me back. I am not going to let any excuse hold me back from doing my duty. Gurnall says it's the fearful who march for hell. Listen, the valiant, and he gives the reference, the valiant are they who take heaven by force. Now listen, this is the word. Cowards never won heaven. William Gurnall. Imagine sitting under his pastorate. Nick, mine's bad. You sit down and listen to this man. Cowards never won heaven. Do not claim, listen, do not claim that you are begotten of God and have his royal blood running in your veins unless you can prove your lineage by this heroic spirit to dare to be holy in spite of men and devils. Yes. Man, that's good. Yes. Cowards never won heaven. Well, cowards never won anything. My father was a World War II veteran and a Korean War veteran. And I'm not certain to put down my own dad or anybody else. 80 to 85% of the people never fired a gun. We won! Did we? Did we? Or did 20% actually win? That's a question to ponder. But this I'm telling you right now. Every single one of you here, you say, well, I'm a Christian. You are in it. 
And you better get your sword, the word of God, life of prayer. You better get in it because there's a strategy against your life. And it may be working this very day as I'm speaking to you. It may be working against you and you don't even know it. You've got a hook in your mouth and it's pulling you. And others can see it and you can't see it. Now that's a possibility. How do you know? Because this book, when you open it, it shines light. What does on me? It shines light. I don't see your sins, I see mine. The needs that I have. Oh God, help me to be more dedicated and so on and so forth. Is that your experience? Or you say, well, that's good for you, Pastor, but I'm okay. I'm all right. This is a strategy against your life. What's your weakness? Like Samson. What was Samson's weakness? It's the women, it's the girls. We read in Proverbs, not to lust after her beauty, but he couldn't help himself, I guess, until finally he was blind and shaven. And the way he ended his life, well, it's still kind of a neat story, but pushing on the temple, which, by the way, archaeologists have just discovered this site, pushed on the temple pillars, let me die with my enemies, because his life was gone. He sold it out for a woman who said, where's your strength, where's your strength? And finally, it said of Samson that she had vexed him so much that he wished he would die. I mean, I'm not trying to disparage the ladies, but can you be in a marriage that your wife just nags you so much that you said, I just wish I would die? Okay, here's the secret of my strength. Cut my hair. And she did. She cut his hair. She cut his hair. Philistines came in, tied him up. He wound up in prison, pushing his turnstile and becoming a laughingstock. The bad thing for God is God, but for us is the fact that you could be in my position, you know, saying all this stuff and really mess up well, and there was no mercy in the world. You become a laughingstock to everybody around you. In fact, I saw somebody last night. I had a hard time. I listened only because the music was good, but I had a real hard time just listening to his voice in the background because he messed up really good. Then he blamed everybody who didn't pray for him. I have no tolerance for that. If I mess up, that's on me. I will not come out and say, you people made me do this. But I'll tell you what, don't you come to me and say, you made me do this. I'm at work at 7 a.m. Granted, I'm in my chair with a coffee, but I'm at work. I'm finishing 9, 30, 10 o'clock every single day, seven days a week, every day. And I told you, this is a fight, and I'm in it. I hear everything. But the one thing that I'm not tolerating is saying, you are the problem. I already know I'm a problem, but I'm not your problem. Go straighten out your own mess and look in the mirror, and you will find every problem you've ever had is staring right back at you in the mirror. Well, we're told to stand with our loins girt with truth and the breastplate of righteousness and on and on. You could read 14 through 18 on your own. But let me just finish with this. With the statistics that I gave you, let me add this to it. I have been on and off through the years. American Civil War history buff. And I'll tell you what I would not want to be. I would not want to be one of the over 100,000 deserters from the Confederate Army or part of the over 200,000 deserters in the Union Army. Those are the statistics. Men were discouraged. They were lonely. They wanted to go see their wife. They wanted to go home. They didn't like the camp. The food is too cold. But when they were caught as a coward, there was different types of punishment, including death. But most times they were simply branded right on the forehead with a C. When you heard about being drummed out of the military, well, that's what they literally did with rudimental drummers. Drum roll. Captain has his bars taken off, buttons taken off, button taken off. Cowardly meant you ran from the enemy in the face of the enemy. A deserter, of course, that's self-explanatory, so you got a D. And you live with that your whole life. You go to get a job, you got a big D tattoo. I don't believe that God does that type of thing. But how do you want to enter heaven? Let's assume that by the grace of God, there are cowards in heaven or going to heaven. Let's just assume that. 
Remember, we won the war. 15% of the people in World War II fired their guns. So many scholars have pointed this out. We won. Okay, team win. But where were you in the fight? Where were you in the fight? I don't want to go to heaven with a C indelibly stamped on my forehead. The enemy was there, and what did you do? You quit. Wouldn't fire your gun. Nor am I going to desert in the heat of the battle. I don't want to have a D on my head either. What I want, and I hope that you want it too, is what is promised to those who are in this all the way. A crown of righteousness, I mentioned from the Apostle Paul at the end of his life in 2 Timothy. A crown of righteousness. Now I'm asking you today, are you going to go for the crown of righteousness or for a a C on your head means you're a coward when the heat was on, the enemy was there, you wouldn't even fire back. Or Deech, you deserted in the midst of a battle. Well, we had a lot of that in history in the military. Rather, we want to be able to sing, when the battle's over, we shall wear a crown. You may not be familiar right off the bat with the name of Isaac Watts, but you may remember some of his hymns. Oh God, our help in ages past. Isaac Watts. Joy to the world, Isaac Watts. wrote over 750 hymns, or about 750 hymns. And one is called, When the Battle's Over. When the battle's over, I am a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause, or blush to speak his name? When the battle's over, we shall wear a crown. We shall wear a crown. We shall wear a crown. That's the refrain. When the battle's over, we shall wear a crown in the new Jerusalem The next verse goes, must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease? That's what most Christians in America want. Hey, pastor, you may may say to me at this message and write me an email. I didn't like that. Well, I'm sorry if I upset you with reality. But I ain't here to placate people. I'm here to tell the truth. Do I love you? Well, you know I love you. I've been here for a long time, right? 36 years come September if you want to throw a little celebration. I'm up for that. Thirty-six years that have been nothing but hell on earth. It's funny for you. It's not funny for me. It's been hell on earth. But I don't care. I'll march through hell so we could populate heaven. Whatever we have to do. Because I'm not going into heaven with a C stamped on my head or a D stamped on my head. I was going looking for something. I'll finish with this. I was looking for something this week and took out a box where I have some old things. And I found some medals that I had won when I was a rudimental drummer. And some of them are big, and they're really, really, really sharp-looking medals, nice-looking medals. And when I brought them out, there's two of them in my championship days, they were clinging. You know, clink, clink, clink. It reminded me once again that that's how I want to go into heaven. I don't want to be one of the 80%, 85% that didn't even fire the gun and say, hey, we won. No, we didn't. The 15% and the 20% that were in it all the way, they won, and you just happened to be on the team and escaped uh, the casualty list. And some don't escape that either. Two options here. On the battlefield, somebody's going to die. Choose the other guy. In this case, I'm talking about the spiritual warfare. Fight the good fight of faith. When the time comes, and it's coming for all of us here to meet your maker, no one's going to come near you and put a C on your head or a D on your head, but you're going to wear a crown. And as I always say, or so frequently I say, and to be able to hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, well done. When the battle's over, but it ain't over yet. We're in it. You may say, I don't want to be in it. It's not like the military. You're not getting a discharge. Or if you do, you don't want a discharge. 
Because heaven won't be your home. Those are the choices that we have. I'll stay in it. And if I'm going to be in it, I'm going to be in it 100%. If I'm going to be in it, I'm going to be in it to win. And I pray that you would be too. The world is primed for Christ right now. The world is primed for Christ. Let's do this. Let's do this here in the Adirondacks or wherever we are. I don't even know where we are. I'm glad I'm not in New York right now, I'll tell you that much. Let's pray. Father, the reality of your word strikes me every time I read it. And I'm glad for that. Help us to confront casual Christianity in a time of increasing warfare that is not going to play out well for our children and our grandchildren or for ourselves if we don't stand up and be counted. Line is drawn in the sand. This war is not going away until you return, Jesus. But help us not to be cowards, because cowards, as Gurnall said, never won heaven. I pray, Father, that you would continue to fill Time for Truth and those that are associated with it with your spirit. And those that are watching from overseas, our friends from all these African countries, plus India and the Punjab and Pakistan and other places, fill them with your spirit too. All over the world, fill your people with your spirit that will stand in this wicked hour that we live in, this evil day. Help us, God, to have the ambition to enter heaven, to receive that crown of life, crown of righteousness, and whatever else you have in store. Help us, Lord God, today, in Jesus' name, to be intrepid and redoubtable when it comes to your gospel. Help us, Lord Father God, today, in Jesus' mighty name, to be filled with your spirit and the power of your might. Oh, God, just fill your people today. Open their eyes to see where the darkness lies, and far too often it lies inside of us, not outside. Help us to examine our hearts, oh God, that we may not be presumptuous in our approach to you. We bless you today, Lord. We give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor, for your name is great, and your name is greatly to be praised. When the battle's over, we shall wear a crown, we shall wear a crown. We shall wear a crown. Now, as I said earlier, God, help us not only to love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. Maybe the easier part than the second one, love one another. Help us to put away all the baloney, the excuses. Put all that baloney away. and Just do what you say. No more talk. Let's walk. We give you all the praise, give you all the glory, and give you all the honor today, Father God, in Jesus' mighty name. Can you say amen with me today? Amen. Amen.